wow, Christmas is almost here. Hallelujah. I have got people coming from all over the place. My wife's stuck in Colombo at the moment. She's been going 18 hours so far. They just told her the plane's been delayed another six. And that delays the next one. And on and on and on. I've got Helen and Tim coming with Jetpack Jim, our little granddaughters. One's very chilled out and the other one's the, di- the absolute polar opposite. She caught a wasp this week in a hand. And even though he stung her, she still held onto that thing. Can you believe that? And then he eventually let it go. So they're coming from there, and then Josh is coming from California. It's a different day today when your kids are all, your family's spread all around the world. But thank God they're coming home for Christmas. So it's going to be one, one very busy Christmas. <laughs> well, good morning, New Hope. What a privilege it is to share the Word of God. Father, thank you for your words. Today I pray that your words and the things that you want to say would penetrate people's hearts and minds. Speak to us deeply, Lord, in a way that only your spirit can do. Impress upon us what you are saying and what needs to happen in our lives. For your glory, we ask it. Amen. So we're in a series about four crucial questions that were asked at the first Christmas, and those same four crucial questions are Questions that have direct implication for you for 2017 and at this Christmas. The first week we looked at Mary's question. And Mary's question was, wow, I had plans this way for my life. Now the question was this, will I accept God's plan for my life? She wasn't fixing on being pregnant at that young age. She, had, she was fixing on getting engaged, having a normal marriage, normal family. That wasn't the case. Mary's question, she had to answer when that angel appeared to her was, will I accept God's direction compared to my direction? And that may be something that God challenges you on. Because very often we have ideas this way. See, the Bible says it this way. Man makes his plans, but God directs his paths. It is very possible that God can direct you in a different way than you would naturally go. In fact, that's what the Bible says. We are like sheep and we've all gone our own separate ways. And it's not the way that God would have us often go. So that's the question that you're going to have to deal with in 2017. Will I go God's way or will I, nah, 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 I'll get on with my agenda. And last week we looked at Joseph's question, question number two. And this is a big one. You're going to have to face this probably next year, guaranteed in the next two Will I trust God when life doesn't make sense? This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where your faith becomes very real. Joseph had to do that. Will I trust God when he hears Mary say something crazy? Honey, I'm pregnant. I could see his faith drop. And I promise I didn't have sex. What? And I, by the way, food shock. And by the way, the baby I'm having, it's God wrapped in flesh. Can you imagine how that guy felt? At that moment, and in the moments to come, he had to answer the question, will I trust God when life, things don't make sense? This week, we're going to look at the third question. And this is a question that was posed from the wise men. 
Who are these guys anyway? The Bible calls them, depends upon the version you look at, magi or, or wise men. And they were a combination of philosopher, scientist, and astronomer. They were quite wealthy, and they were very educated, these men. Where did they come from? First question. Well, we're not 100% sure, but the general consensus among theologians is it came from either Persia, Babylon, or perhaps even China. We don't know. But one thing we do know, whichever those three options you choose, they came an awful long way. How many wise men were there? Well, if you look at your Christmas cards, the answer will be how many? Yeah, that's not in the Bible at all. Most of you know that. I think where we get that from is the Bible does mention three gifts. Three gifts that they brought. What were they? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So let's just pick up the story. The wise man is found in the book of Matthew, chapter 2. The Bible says this, that Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem in Judea during the time that Herod was king. Now, this is the place. Next slide. This is where Bethlehem is today. You can go there and you can see it today. Now, first point is Bethlehem is the Hebrew word for the house, Bethlehem, bread. The house of bread. Now, it's interesting, mildly interesting to me, that the bread of life comes from the house of bread there. Herod, he's the next guy, was not really the true king of Israel that was reigning over this area. He was appointed by the Roman Senate and confirmed by Caesar Augustus. And everybody hated the guy because he was a traitor. Long story, but he was, he was sort of a Jew, but he was a traitor. And he used his position for pecuniary interest. Now, Herod was also a bit of a madman. He was so unbelievably paranoid that his throne would be stolen off him and he'd be overthrown, that he had three of his kids killed, whom he suspected were plotting against him, and several wives killed and other relatives were brutally murdered. So get the picture. This is the kind of guy that was in power when Jesus came to earth. He wouldn't let anybody close to his throne. So when he hears about a king of the Jews being born, he gets quite interested. The Bible continues. After Jesus was born, some wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. They asked, where is the baby who was born to be king of the Jews? You see, these guys had been reading up on the Old Testament. And actually, one of the most stunning prophecies in the Bible is Daniel's, And when he predicts the year he will be born and the year he would die. That's a whole other subject. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before. They knew, they had read the scriptures. 
some of the other ones. And this is an interesting one. Let's pick it up in Micah 5.2. It's up on your screen, not in your outline. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Now that's quite significant. Let me tell you why that's significant. Next slide. In there, there are two, in, in, in Israel, there are two Bethlehems. There are two. This is very specific. Not the one up north, the one down south. Bethlehem Ephratah, which is in Judea. That's what it's known as. Not the one up north. Another scripture in Isaiah seven fourteen: Behold, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. That saying there, I'm going to send a savior to earth, the Messiah. I'm going to send the Christ. Someone who's going to pay for the sins of the whole world. And these guys obviously knew this, even though they weren't Jewish in origin. And then it goes on to say, we saw his star, and we've come to worship him. And many of you are aware of this. Now let's move on. When King Herod heard this, heard what? That the king of the Jews has been born, he was troubled. Now that's an understatement. Here comes problems. My throne is being threatened, as well as the people in all Jerusalem. Herod called a meeting of the leading priests and all the teachers of the law, and he asked them, where the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, was to be born, or would be born? They answered, in the town of Bethlehem, in Judea. Not the one up north, in Judea. They read that. Because the Bible had predict this, predicted this hundreds of years before. Then Herod had a secret meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the exact time that they saw the star. He sent the wise men to Bethlehem, saying, Look carefully for the child, and when you find him, come directly and tell me so I can worship him too. Yeah, right. He wants to kill off any competition, the sniff of any competition. The Bible continues. After the wise men heard the king, they left. The star that they had seen in the east went with them until it stopped above the place where the child was. Now some have suspect this is a unique kind of a star. They call it the star of Bethlehem. And when they saw the star, it stopped over the place where the child was. When the wise men saw it, they were filled with joy. They came, notice this, to the house where the child was. And they saw him with his mother. Then they bowed down and worshipped him. Now notice a couple of things. Firstly, they didn't worship Mary. Worship is reserved for God and God alone. And also notice that Jesus is not in the stable anymore like you see on your, on your Christmas cards, but he's in a house. Joseph had moved him and his family to a house. But again, modern nativity scenes show the wise men visiting Jesus that night. That's not quite scripturally accurate. But he certainly wasn't in the manger, and some time had passed since Jesus' birth. So these guys arrive, and they bow down and they worship him. And then they opened their gifts and gave him treasures of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now today, as we look at these wise men, I want to ask two 
predominant questions. One, what made these wise men wise? And two, how they decided on what gift to give Jesus. What was the significance behind those? And it's important to understand what made these men wise because these principles will help us, the same five things that we're going to need to do in 2017 to be wise. Firstly, these wise men were seekers of the truth. Truth is objective. What was true a thousand years ago is the same true today and will same be true in a million years. Truth never changes. We just discover the truth. Wise people seek the truth. They're not happy with guesses. They're certainly not happy with just mere speculation. They want to know what's the truth. What is the truth about my origin? Where did I come from? Who am I? Is there any meaning to life? That's significance. No, there isn't without God because you're just molecules in motion. You're a moist robot. Without God, there is no meaning. You can't tell anything about your origin, where you came from. You can't, who am I? What am I here for? How should I live? Morality? See, we get objective anchors for that in God, not in human opinion, which changes. And oh, by the way, without God, there is no answer to the last question, the fifth most consequential question, where am I going? The question of destiny. The Bible says, where is the baby who is born to be the king of the Jews? They were seeking Jesus. And wise people still seek Jesus today. He, he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Now, if for some of you today, you're seeking the truth, that's great. You've come to a great church which will encourage you to seek and ask questions. But if what Jesus said there was true, that has enormous implications. Enormous implications. They were seeking the truth. But today I found there's kind of two kinds of people in life when it comes to truth. There's speculators and there are seekers. Speculators just guess about the truth. They say, well, you know, I've always thought God was like dot, 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 dot. Or they say, well, you know what? I like to think of God as... Could I humbly suggest to you, it doesn't matter what you think, what matters is what the truth is. That's what you need to seek and clarify, the truth. What is God really like? Not how we imagine him in our heads. I could erroneously think that God is some old guy with a white flowing beard, which may be comfortable to me, but it's flat wrong. And that will be deluding yourself. What you need to know is what the truth of God is. Not what I guess or not what I speculate. See, genuine seekers, on the other hand, take the time and they take the trouble to hunt down the truth. Like the wise men, genuine seekers do four things. They ask questions. That's what wise men and women do. You need to ask questions. They study. They don't just ask, flap their lips and speculate. They study. 
See, these wise men knew the Savior was coming. They knew he was going to be born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And they were watching too. The third thing, they were watching, looking for signs. They saw the star. And fourth, I found amazing that they were willing to do whatever it took to get to the truth, to find answers. And if you're a seeker, and if you haven't come to know Jesus yet, that's okay. This is a great church for you. Why? Because to find the truth, you've got to seek it. Jesus, uh, in Jeremiah 29, says this, If you seek me with all of your hearts, you will find me. There's got to be intentionality about that. So if you're genuinely serious about knowing the truth, you cannot miss it. If you don't have preconceived prejudices and ideas, because God loves seekers. So these wise men were wise because they sought the truth. But more than that, they were, go to, they were willing to go to any length to find it. That's wise. Bible says that they come a long way from the east. So these guys have traveled thousands of miles at great expense. Here's the ironic thing. Herod was a king living in Jerusalem. And he missed it. He missed Christmas. The political leaders of Jerusalem, the power brokers, missed the greatest authority in the universe right under their nose. The religious leaders missed Christmas. And it was in their backyard too. The business people were so full and booming, boom times because of the census, they were too busy hitting the cash registers. They missed it right under their nose. Not one of the influential leaders were seeking Jesus. It was the guys actually, as you observe this, on the outside. It was the shepherds. It was the wise men from afar. Now you can have Jesus right in your midst and miss him if you're not looking for him. This is what's going on there. Contrast the wise men. They're making a four to five month journey across scorching heat and freezing cold in deserts. Remember, it gets freezing at night in deserts because these guys are serious about seeking God. This is not kind of like a, a trivial pastime. I love this. The one thing that Christianity cannot be is moderately important. Think about that for a minute. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. It's either worth all you've got or nothing at all. That's Jesus' challenge. I wish that you were hot or cold, but don't be lukewarm. Number three, they didn't stop these wise men until they met Jesus. If you're wise, don't stop seeking until you meet him face to face. Verse 11 says this, finally, they came to the place where Jesus was. Have you come to that place in your life? Some of the members of my family have, some haven't. If you haven't, do not stop seeking. One thing I can tell you, they're still seeking, which is good. Here's what happens. I've noticed this. When you're young, you start asking the major questions of life that I mentioned. The question of origin. Where did I come from? Then you start to ask, who am I? What's my, my identity? Not my parents' identity. What's my individual identity? The way that God made me. Then three. Then the question comes on, well, why am I even here? Is there any meaning to this life? Or is it just work, 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 work? And then you ask the question too. One, this question comes to every single person in this room. How should I live? Should I live morally? And by the way, what is morality? And is it just 
pull public opinion or is morality actually anchored in God because if you're just molecules in motion there is no such thing as morality it's an illusion how come molecules have morality morality is anchored in the uh, on an objective source way above us it's in God they ask questions like that how should I live and then where am I going and that's a, t- a, a, a good topic that happens around high school and some degree university but mainly high school is there life after death the question of destiny these are ultimate questions but what happens is we ask these as we're teenagers but then all of a sudden we get real busy and we're we're getting a job and we're getting married and we're having kids and we're making money and we postpone this quest for truth that is not wise you need to find ultimate answers to the ultimate questions in life and can I humbly suggest to you nothing less than the ultimate will ultimately satisfy you doesn't matter about job or position or person or even family because they can all be taken from you not that there's anything wrong with those things the wise men seek truth they're willing to go to any length to know what truth is about about God truth about me truth about my life and they're willing to keep on going they don't flake out even across deserts and you even right today maybe in a desert right now keep on going till you meet Jesus number four they came for the right reason they searched for Jesus and in verse two they say and we have come to worship him now a lot of people today I've noticed want to use Jesus not love him they want to use him not to worship him friends God is not your genie in a bottle where you rub the bottle or you pray and he gives you whatever you want God I need this right now please give it to me right now see many people want to use him but do you want to love him they came for the right reason the Bible says we came to worship him number five they gave Jesus the best they had they didn't give him some leftover worthless item some maybe last minute gift card (laughs) which is so warm and tender and it shows so much thought (laughs) whoops sorry I may have ruined somebody's present there (laughs) they put some serious thought into their gifts the three gifts that the wise men gave had significant meaning and symbolism. Verse 11, they bowed down and they worshipped him. Who? The young baby Jesus. They opened up their treasures, circle the word treasures, and they gave him their gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh now what is the significance of gold frankincense and myrrh well in in antiquities if you were going to see a king you wouldn't pony out with copper you wouldn't pony out with even even silver or other precious metals the one thing you would pony out with if you're meeting a king was gold gold was the most precious metal they hadn't come across palladium or platinum and stuff like that in those days but that was the most expensive precious metal 
So what they're effectively saying and honoring by giving him that gold, this little mite, is they were saying, he is the king. This little baby is a king. They were recognizing that in the significance of that gold. Second thing they gave him was frankincense. Now frankincense had been used of old to burn and it gave off this beautiful aroma and it was often used in the temple as an offering and that symbolized the worshiping of God. That's what frankincense was all about. So first of all, gold for the king, frankincense symbolizing the worship of God, amazing. And then the third one was a bit weird, a bit unusual. Any woman who got this next gift of the baby shower would go, what is that? She'd be shocked because myrrh is a burial spice used to embalm dead bodies. These wise men were saying, this baby is going to die. He's not just the king of kings. He's the son of God whom we worship. He's the savior who came to die. So friends, remember this. Jesus didn't just come to live for 33 years. Even before Jesus had spoken his very first word, three wise men, or these wise men, knew he came to die. Their gifts spoke clearly how the Son of God would eventually die for the sins of the world on the cross. And he came to die in your place so that your sins can be forgiven, so that you can live a new life and, you, and the barrier can be removed between you and God. Now, the reason why we have gift-giving tradition at Christmas is because the wise men brought gifts. That's the whole purpose of that. So the question is, what are you going to give Jesus at his birthday? I want you to imagine for a moment that we're going to have a party. And this party is for, say, a thousand, we're, we're going to invite a, a, a birthday party for Jesus. And a thousand people come. And they all bring gifts, and they, but they bring gifts for each other. But Jesus, the birthday boy, doesn't get one. If you were Jesus, how would you feel at that party? If everybody brought gifts for everybody else to swap amongst themselves, but nobody in that whole crowd gave you one, would you feel left out? Naturally. Sometimes I think that's we, what we miss at Christmas. We exchange gifts with each other, furiously, and at great pressure and stress. But do we remember the birthday boy? I like to make Jesus a birthday cake at Christmas. It's the one time in the year I built bake a cake. Normally an orange cake, because I love orange cakes. And we sing happy birthday to Jesus at our place, even with my older kids, because it's his birthday, and I think we forget that. What are you going to give him? Because unless you give, he doesn't have these four things, which I'm going to suggest to you now, unless you give them to him. And it is within your power to give these to Jesus at his birthday. If I want to get, what, by the way, what do you give somebody who has, who's got everything? He's got everything apart from I'd suggest you these four things. Firstly, if you want to give Jesus something this Christmas that he doesn't have, give him your trust. Faith is a voluntary matter. Jesus will never force you. And Jesus doesn't have your trust unless you give it to him. 
do you really trust God? Especially when life doesn't make sense. Especially when life doesn't make sense. Or it's hard going. The Bible says this, Psalm 50 verse 15, I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me in your times of trouble. And some of you are in trouble right now. So that I can rescue you and you can give me glory. Are you going to trust God in your times of trouble? It's one gift. Because if you don't give it to him, he doesn't have it. I remember when my, when my dad left so many, 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 many moons ago. I had a choice of looking to other people to fill that void and trust or trusting my heavenly father. And I can stand before you and say this, he has never, ever, ever let me down. He's always been there. He's always constant. There's no shadow of turning. See, God is always faithful, but people are fickle. He is always faithful. That's why he says, trust in me. Then your heart won't be disappointed. Second, you can give him first place in your life. Because that's where he belongs. If he's God, he deserves first place. That is logically congruent. Anything you put in first place in your life that's not God can be taken from you and will disappoint you. Your career is a miserable first place. Your girlfriend, now not so much she's miserable, <laughs> but you get the point. Making money. The Bible says that very simply. Friends, here it is, unadulterated. Friends, do not put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Don't do that. Put your trust in a foundation that'll never shake let me give you an example a friend of mine one year older than me had done well last week she had a stroke and she's about to die well nobody can take my wealth from me <laughs> life is fickle God is faithful Your husband, your kids, I know from a fact, my dad and my mum. Bless your soul, mum. <laughs> Nothing wrong with those things. They're all good. They're all gifts of God. Your career is a gift from God. Your wife's a gift from God. Your children are a gift from God. And you wouldn't have any of them if it weren't for God. God just says this one thing to you. They just don't deserve first place. They just do not deserve first place. There can only be one first place in your life. And that is the God who can never be taken from you. You say, great, how do I put God as first place in my life in 2017? I didn't do as well as I wanted to maybe last year, this year. In fact, actually, I was in first place a lot of 2016. How can I change that for next year? Well, first, just a little quicker uh, practical acrostic I thought about this week. And it's this, you may want to put it on the side. Number one is your finances. Number two, your interests. And by the way, finances doesn't just mean giving. It means saving and being disciplined, investing wisely. You can't give unless you save. 
Huh? So saving, you know, in this church, we, we encourage people to save, to budget. Interests. I give them first place in my interests. It's not all the things that I want to do and then God get. oh, if I've got anything left over, then I'll give that to you, God. Where's God in your interests? Relationships. I put God first place in my relationships. I said, if God, you're number one, the safest place for my wife to be is knowing that she's actually, hold on for this one, number two in my life. Number two. And God's number one. Because if God is actually number one, she's solid as a rock. Our marriage is solid as a rock. If God is number one. And that gives her enormous security. Yes. In my schedule, I put God first place in my schedule. That means I actually get after this spending daily time with God. If I told my wife I loved her, I only spoke to her once a week, she'd be going, hmm, what sort of relationship is this? <laughs> right? A relationship needs a two-way communication and needs constant communication. So I read the Bible, I talk to God, I'm quiet and I listen to his word. And I say, is there anything that you want to say to me about the way I am treating my wife, my children, my neighbors? Is there anything you want to say through me to my neighbor, Richard? Or Doug? Or Kevin? Or Grant? Is there anything you want to say to me, Lord? Because I know you love those people. And then T, you put them first in your time. That's how you put God first. You make some time. Because anything, if I said to my wife, honey, I love you, you, you are so important to me, and you don't spend time with her, there's, there's a disconnect. My words are not congruent with my actions. Now, Jesus makes this amazing promise to anybody who does this, putting him first. He says this in Matthew 6, 33. Seek first, first the kingdom of God. That's all Jesus' followers must settle the question of competing priorities. Competing priorities. Seek first the kingdom of God. That's God's plans and God's purposes for your life. What God wants to do in and through you and his righteousness, and that's character that God wants to build in you. And here's the promise, and all the other things will be added, given to you as well. That verse focuses on, will you give God your trust? Do you really believe if you put him in first place in every area of your life, he will take care of everything else? And I'll tell you what, if you do that, it'll remove a whole bunch of worry from your life. The third thing I can give him and he doesn't have unless I give it to him, is I give him my heart. Give yourself to the Lord. Psalm 37 verse 5 says, trust in him and he'll help you. As we're saying today, what is your heart centered on? Is it centered around the mad rush of life? Madly plotting new schemes to generate finance. It's important to support yourself, but there's a big difference between need and greed. You only have one life. Center your life on the things you care most about, what you treasure. That's what you're doing. My question today is, will you give him and put him in the center of your heart that we sung about? How do I know if I've really given my heart to Jesus? Jesus is very clear about this. Wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
Now the wise men brought their treasures to Jesus and it says they opened their treasures. Why? Because they're an expression of worship. We want you to have a heart, Lord. Can I suggest to you something quite radical? Here it is. Strap them down. You and I don't actually own anything. It all belongs to God. Everything we have. It wasn't yours before you were born. That piece of dirt that you're sitting on, on your section, was there before you came and will be there after you go. It's not going to be yours after you die. You're going to be gone. You're going to take nothing with you. Everything that's on this earth belongs to God. And he just loans it for you and I, including your car and your house and your job and all those things, just for a few years, 70, 80 years, and then you're going to leave it all behind. So it's actually all his. Here's what God says. This is an interesting verse, an eye-opener. Hosea 6, 6. I don't need your sacrifices, he was saying to the Old Testament guys. That doesn't hurt me whether you do that or you don't. don't. Add to me or take away from me. I want your love. I don't need your offerings. God's not broke. You imagine you've got your real estate. It's probably worth a million bucks. What's that compared to the world? What's that compared to the entire real estate in the universe? It's a drop in the jolly bucket. Any time we give an offering to God, remember, he owns the universe. You're adding to his bank account. He's not poor and we're not helping him out. He doesn't need my money. What he wants is what it represents. Big difference. And this week and next week at New Hope, we're actually going to give, for those of you who want to do that, to prepare to give a gift at Christmas so that we're not just giving gifts to our families, and that's a good thing to do. But there are other people in this world, the Bible refers to them as the least amongst us. It is my job as a pastor to push back against the consumerism of this world and remind you of what he says, what you did for the least of these, you did it to me. You may want to give to the poor and the vulnerable through tear fund, but by doing it in an intelligent way, by giving them a life-sustaining business. I talked about that last week. Perhaps you may want to do as I'm doing this year, giving a cow and a goat because that's going to help lift a family out of poverty. Others, some have already given last, uh, last week, gave a Christmas offering for missions to help tell people the good news. See, it's one thing to help them out, but they also need to hear the good news. Perhaps this week, for some of you, your gift may be you're going to give your, finally, you're going to give your life and your heart to him. Now then there's a fourth thing that you can bring to Jesus. If I'm wise, I'll bring my trust. I'll give him, I'll put God first. I'll put him first. I'll give him my heart. And finally, I will bring other people to Jesus. That's the fourth thing. Because the number one thing that God wants is children in his family who choose to love and trust him. And it's the reason we celebrate Christmas. Back to the basics. God so loved the world, that's you, that he gave his only begotten son, that's Jesus, that whoever believes in him, that's all of us, will not perish, that's the greatest news. Did you get that? When you step off terra firma, no perish. But have everlasting life. That's an amazing gift. I mean, a mind-blowing gift. And that's what Christmas is all about. Christmas is God 
broadcasting to the world, I love you. I want you in my family. So God wants us to bring others to Jesus. Look at how passionate God is about people finding him. Luke 14, 23. Quite compelling this. There's some specificity and intentionality in this verse. Go out into the highways and the countryside and urge. That's a strong word. Urge everyone you find to come in so that my house, the house will be full. Now on Saturday the 24th, at 5 to 6, we're going to have a one-hour Christmas carol evening service. My question to you is, who are you going to be the star to? That shows them this is where you can hear about the good news. Don't come by yourself this Christmas. People will come Christmas Eve to sing carols far more than they'll come at many other times a year. Now, I'm not even asking you to go witness to somebody or to convince them to accept Christ. I am asking you to invite your friends and neighbors to the Christmas Eve. That's a gift that you can give Jesus this Christmas by bringing somebody who does not know him. People give their life to, Christmas, uh, to, to Jesus at Christmas, most Christmas services. Let's bow and pray. Father, I want to thank you for these dear people that I love and that you love. I thank you that you love them so incredibly, deeply and richly. And that you've loved us enough to send your son Jesus to die for us, to forgive our sins. What a truly stunning gift. Father, thank you that you've not only come to die for us, but to give us a purpose in living. You've even equipped us with the talents and the gifts and the opportunities to influence this world for good. And Lord, you extend that gift by even giving us a gift that lasts for eternity, not just a few months and be forgotten. But Lord, we'll have a home in heaven forever. I pray that these next two weeks we will bring others to Christmas. I pray that you will use us to be the stars and that there will be people in heaven because of this week and the Christmas service because we cared enough. May we in the middle of all this rush and the activities make room for you in our hearts. We pray this in the most powerful name, Jesus Christ our Lord. And everybody said, Amen.